Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Lainey. Hi, it's Joanna. Welcome to season two of Show Your Work. We did it. We're back. Sorry it took so long. I'm not sorry. We had to like <laughs> generate new stuff, new opinions and things. Okay, hit me. Well, I mean, you know, a lot happened. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure that you have reacted to the the biggest viral video of the day, right? I have been offline a lot today. So you haven't seen it? The thing? The thing that has taken over, like the biggest story going? No, what? Now you're making me feel like I, now I have major FOMO. What is the video? Well, I kind of want you to see it before we talk about it. Um Today, there was a viral video released of a robot that they taught to do like standing box jumps and backflips. And basically, everybody knows that this means that humanity is over. Okay. Can we pause while you watch this video? Yeah. Jesus. Is someone controlling him? It's been programmed, obviously. Whoa! Look at this jump! You know, I do box jumps at the gym. (laughs) Are you going to be one of those people? And there is, seriously, the way that this robot's doing the box jump, there's a slight hesitation before his feet land. That's not human. Like, I would say that that's what they have to work on. There is a slight pause in the feet before the feet end up on on the box. Um, That's not how a human jumps. I'm just sorry. Like, you can tell that there's some sort of air passage. There's air, like, it's it's like hydraulic. Did you notice that, Yasik? I know you would have noticed something like that. Okay, I'm just going to humbly suggest that you might have slightly missed the point. Which is that if they can teach a robot to do box jumps and backflips, we're done. Stupid humans are done. Well, you just said they had to program it. Yeah, but the whole thing is that robots can learn, right? Like artificial intelligence is a thing that can be learned. I don't think you and I are done. Based on what? My ability to do box jumps? No, it can learn the physicality and eventually kill the other people, but what robots... But what robots can't do is they can't gossip and they can't tell stories. I mean, I think Are you going to tell me that one day there's a robot that's going to be able to create a whisper network? Listen, uh, the next thing I'm going to tell you about in uh, Duanna's technology intros before we get into the podcast in season two is about the new faces that they can generate now, which are utterly amazing. If there are robots you can program and new faces that you can create out of basically thin air, uh, actors and performers as we know it are done. What, like an expression? Like a stank face? No, all of the above. Face generate. Entirely new face people. 
I want to cling to the idea that a, a robot is not going to be able to like tell me who's having an affair with who and who fucking like is having a, had a secret child and whatever. I mean, before we get into the meat of it, I used to think that people who were afraid of robot uprisings were, um, you know, a bit conspiracy theorists or whatever. But tw- if 2017 has taught us anything, it's that every crazy conspiracy theory, uh, every crazy thing that is impossible has come to pass. Uh, so if you're afraid of robots or of AIs, please let us know, uh, write in, tell us how you feel. Uh, and maybe we'll talk about it on season two of show your work. We're so excited to be back. We're back. As you said, like before we went on the air at a time when the entire culture changed, like we took a break and Hollywood reinvented itself or is self-destructing. Like to the point where a few weeks ago, you and I, you know, took a hiatus from our hiatus to talk about what was then an isolated Harvey Weinstein story. And since then, the entire culture of not just Hollywood, but maybe the world's surrounding Hollywood has revolutionized? Is that too dramatic? Well, I mean, for me, what I keep calling it is the Hollywood Predator advent calendar. Like every fucking day someone pops out. And it has at this point, I mean, by after the weekend, this goes up on Monday, something else might happen, but it has affected all levels of production and entertainment, like all arms, television, producers, directors, this and that and the other agents, um, oh, actors. Oh, you mean it, like they've all been culpable? Yeah. I mean, it's not just a producer, right? Harvey Weinstein's a producer. It's not just a studio head. It's not just an actor. It's not just an agent. It is like whoever's working. Oh, absolutely. And of course, it goes well beyond, as we know and have known, it goes beyond this industry. And there are politicians and there are actors turned politicians and, you know, Nobody is safe. Well, there is one area that has yet to, like, advent calendar itself, and I'm waiting. Music? Yeah. Rock stars. Oh, God. You know, I mean, it feels as though… I was talking with somebody the other day about Almost Famous, and they hadn't seen Almost Famous, and I was talking about how much they would love it because the talk of music is not incidental, right? The love for music in that movie is second to none. It's it's affectionate. But I don't know if you could make that movie today. I don't know if you could make a movie about 14 and 15 and 17-year-old groupies and have it be seen as basically like a Disney feel-good picture yeah. for which Kate Hudson you know, had her greatest honors. Like, I don't think you could make that movie today. And I don't know if if I would feel uncomfortable watching it. I hope so. No, like, I mean, you know how they're uncovering shit from the 70s and 80s now? Like, the Sylvester Stallone incident allegedly happened in 1986. So, again, as you say, think about, like, that tour bus action. And all the little groupie fans waiting outside. And, you know, the bodyguard is sent out there to pluck and choose whoever it is going to be for the night. They never used to ask for age. It wasn't a concern. It was just a 
Tonight I feel like a brunette. Tonight? For the night? For the hour? Oh, sure. You're right. For, you know, at five o'clock, I feel like a brunette. At seven o'clock, get me a blonde. You know, at 10 o'clock, I might want to go for an Asian. I, whatever. And, you know, it's not just when you say the 70s and 80s, it sort of evokes that idea of, uh, you know, long hair bands and kind of rough neck, scruffy guys or whatever. But I remember reading... Uh, an article about either the Backstreet Boys or New Kids on the Block. I do not remember which. And again, they published what was then a jolly anecdote from a <laughs> yeah. uh, from a bodyguard talking about how girl procurement was part of the job. And it was like a hilarious aside. Uh, and that was, you know, I read that within the last couple of years. If you know what that article was, uh, please remind me. Please send me the link. Uh, everything has changed. Our perspective on everything has changed. Well, I should say the asterisk to that music example is, of course, R. Kelly. And it is interesting, you know, not a discussion for today, but it is interesting that for all the outrage and all the people who've been brought down and disgraced over the last, what, six weeks or so, R. Kelly is still doing his R. Kelly thing. Yeah, and I guess one of the reasons that that maybe is the case uh, is that, strangely, there doesn't seem to be a lot of secrecy around what's happening with R. Kelly. That and, I mean, you know, the journalist who's been following this story for 20 years, Jim DeRogatis, I think, and he was covering it in Chicago and most recently in BuzzFeed, and he, he said it best. I mean, he's been doing this and he's been literally screaming, using his megaphone and saying, can you please pay attention to this situation? And as he said, well, the reason why no one cares is because the victims of R. Kelly are young black women who are the most disposable unappreciated uh, demographic in our society. And it is, you know what? It's hard to argue. Because on the Harvey Weinstein side, you've got the Gwyneth Paltrow's and you've got the Angelina Jolie's and you've got the big name famous actresses. And this is, I mean, we're not playing Olympics here. I, I'm not trying to say that. But these young black girls who are, quote, being held in this R. Kelly cult, like, Nobody is caring all that much in the same way. Like, it's not trending every day, right? People aren't like, let's cancel R. Kelly. No, absolutely. But the other thing is that I think one of the things is that in all of these other situations that we've talked about, there are incidents, sometimes ongoing or sometimes isolated incidents, after which there's kind of a culture of silence. R. Kelly's kind of blatantly living his life with the many houses and many girls that he consorts with or keeps in his thrall or as prisoners. There's a brazenness in the fact that there's not even a secret to be kept here. I don't disagree for a second that there's nobody paying attention, but there's also not, you know, you use the term a whisper network. There's no whispering. People are talking about it openly. Yeah. We'll come back a little bit later to whose voices are and are not valued. Uh, but, you know, it's one of the things that's really interesting, of course, is who we talk about. I read something from a journalist 
this week talking about how many women are coming to her with tips and who she has to turn away because the subjects of those tips aren't famous enough, which is a ridiculous turn of events, again, for this maelstrom that is 2017 to be like, well, sorry, we have a different, bigger, higher profile sexual harassment case to fry today. But the one that was most interesting and that was on our lips this week uh, or today, I guess, was uh, actually a reaction uh, to to a case. You yeah. you wanted to talk about, you brought this one up to me. And, yeah. And we've gotten a few requests too. Um, it was Sarah Silverman's response to the Louis C.K. Um, expose in the New York Times. I was about to say allegations, but they're not allegations because he confirmed they're all true. Um, and so Sarah Silverman um, on her show addressed the fact that Louis uh, is, is her friend and they've been friends for 25 years. And so she was like, I don't want to do this, but I have to do this. Um, I, I found it quite effective. Um, and at the same time, I think to myself, okay, Sarah Silverman has used her platform, her show to, um, sort of attack the issue in, in a very, I mean, I don't know that like, you know, she didn't really make any definitive decisions. It wasn't like, I'm not going to be friends with him anymore and he's cut off and whatnot. She was very honest. I feel very complicated about this. He's my friend. I don't know what to think. I'm still processing all of it, but it was sick what he did. Um, we haven't really heard from the other people that he's close to. Well, namely the male people that he's close to. Well, I think that's actually really – I don't think we will, you know, um, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about this, of course, is that she's a woman. She's mm-hmm. a female comic. She is a female comic who, uh, you know, despite being middle-aged at this point – Uh, is still seen as kind of a young, cute girl. That's kind of her thing. It's been sort of how she's marketed herself. In many ways, she's a stand-in for some of the women who were put in the position that they were by Louis C.K., by his actions. So I think that's part of the reason why it's so effective, Uh, which I think is really, you know, important. And I think she probably knows that. Uh, And I think she's probably being in this situation uh, in some form or other. Obviously, one of the things that happens and is happening uh, in this kind of a situation is there's an excavation of what these industries are like, what comedy is like. And uh, there have been some great essays about, you know, the kind of the popular guys in the room who are the comedians and then their satellites around them. I have no doubt that this is the kind of thing that Sarah Silverman has had to confront and that this is why she sort of finds herself here. Uh, But there's an honesty there, right? Like you say, we haven't heard from the men. I feel like a lot of the men would feel that they were in a position to have to, well, do what they were doing for years, right? They asked Aziz Ansari. He wasn't going to answer the question. Colbert gave it one line. They asked uh, John Stewart. He didn't answer the question. Like, you remember when these things were happening, when people knew, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, the journalists knew and didn't do anything. Well, they tried and they got shut down at every turn. So I think that's why you're hearing from Sarah Silverman, because 
being a comedian doesn't cancel out being a woman. Being a famous comedian who's a friend of Louis C.K. doesn't cancel out having been underestimated or uh, objectified or whatever else. Well, I mean, there's two approaches. There's the Sarah Silverman approach because she was a close friend of his and, as you said, also a stand-in. And there's also the Samantha Bee approach. Samantha Bee also attacked it, not a close friend of his, but she went for the culture, the gatekeepers of comedy. You know, let's burn this down. Let's be witches. Um, But again, as I said earlier, uh, just a second ago, Colbert gave it one line. And remember, Colbert worked for for Louis C.K., um, at the beginning or early on in his career. So sure. the Colbert's and the Aziz Ansari's, Chris Rock. Um, oh, also. there's no chance Chris Rock is going yeah. to say anything. A, because, uh, you know, that's one of his boys. Yep. And B, because I think there are whispers, and I am not hinting at anything. I know nothing more than what I'm about to say. But there are whispers that Chris Rock's behavior is not always as, you know, uh, unimpeachable as one would hope it would be before they speak out about somebody else. Well, it was very telling, Dave Becky's response. That is um, the manager, former manager of Louis C.K. and still the manager, um, no longer the manager of Pamela Adlon, right? Um, But Aziz Ansari, Amy Poehler, uh, Kevin Hart, I believe. I mean, look, almost every powerful comedian you can think of is represented by Three Arts, yeah. uh, which is the management firm where Dave Becky works. So, like, yeah, lots and lots of your faves are going to be under that umbrella. And, you know, when when he issued his response, he was like, uh, yeah, I just thought it was a matter of infidelity. Like, a lot of the dudes that those, the boys, just were like, yeah, I'm going to go cheat on my wife. Like, they didn't think that it, they, it was, it was, quote, just cheating, I got to protect my boy from cheating. Right, exactly. It's just a thing that happens as opposed to this is a thing that he is doing to women on purpose, which is exactly what it is in case there needs to be any debate. I'm actually a little bit heartened at how little debate there has been, but I'm human. I read comment sections sometimes. I think we don't need to discuss this here, but in case you just need to play that for somebody, Uh yeah, that's... He did it on purpose to humiliate and embarrass and have power over. There's no debate there. So how long before Louis C.K. gets to come back? Oh, I don't – I think Louis C.K. is done. Yeah? The reason I think Louis C.K. is done is because I think that he is a scapegoat for a whole lot of bad behavior in comedy. Uh, And I want to go back to Samantha Bee here. Uh, Stay with me. There's a lot of bad behavior in comedy – uh, as I think we all kind of know, I think you can glean if you've ever been to stand up anywhere ever, you kind of can see the dirt balls rolling around. Uh, I think the kind of person who needs to be unflappable enough to get up on stage in front of people 360 nights a year can lend itself to some disgustingness. So I think there's a lot of uncovered or still covered up garbage in comedy or people who weren't lucky enough to have been successful as Louis C.K., who are pretty repugnant people. And I think he's taking the fall for a lot of them. So I think he's done. I don't think he's ever coming back. Does that mean, though, that given that they have a scapegoat, it 
doesn't change the system? Not necessarily. And so what I do think is that more people are going to operate outside the system. This is where I come back to Samantha B. Samantha B is amazing. Samantha B is Canadian. Samantha B, though, she's never really been quite in the club. Obviously, she worked for The Daily Show for many years. She has her stripes, but she's never been one of them. You'd never see a show full of traveling comedians and she'd be the token girl. Uh, You know, she didn't really date a whole lot of comedians and be in their circle and that kind of thing. Her show is only on once a week as opposed to the nightly Seth Meyers and Jon Stewart's and Colbert's and whomever else. Again, I'm not talking about something I don't know. I'm just talking about what I see. She's just a little bit on the outside. And uh, the other night, as you say, when she went in on Louis C.K., she didn't just go in on Louis C.K. She also warned against, and I quote, all these other species of comedy penis. And I just want to list for you a few that she wants people to be aware of and avoid. Quote, guy who thinks being raised on The Simpsons gives him a unique POV. Aging improv lurker. Pile of new balances. Tim and Eric is really important to me, motherfucker. The lone man that can separate the art from the person. Guy who pulled a lot of favors to get Twitter verified. Unweirdest guy to ever say, maybe I'm just weird. If a Wes Anderson movie were a person. Guy whose Tinder bio says comedy writer who has never written. The only guy that really gets Mr. Show. Christopher Hitchens, Human Family Guy spec script, and my favorite, host who has never pronounced a name more exotic than Dave correctly. I mean, again, if you've ever been to a stand-up show ever, if your flight got canceled and you were put up at a Holiday Inn somewhere, you have seen some of those people. Uh, And Samantha Bee is showing that she's not afraid to call out some of the sacred cows as opposed to seeing them as like bros who aren't here yet, who might get there someday. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, a lot more outsiders getting a little more of a voice, calling out more of the inside culture. What's going to be left of Hollywood? I mean, as we speak, uh, Ryan Seacrest is the latest to be accused. That's new news since we yes. started this podcast. I mean, it's not going to be new by Monday when this gets posted, but yes, Ryan Seacrest has now popped out of the Predator advent calendar. So uh, there you go. And I don't know if you looked at this latest headline because Matthew Weiner, Mad Men, blah, 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 um, was accused of uh, sexual misconduct and, and inappropriate behavior. Of harassment, yeah. Um. And Marty Noxon, who we've talked about a couple of times on mm. this show in season one, has backed the accuser. Yeah. She said, I believe her. Uh, she said that he, I believe she called him an emotional terrorist. Uh, and so she said that she believes that he, uh, you know, said something inappropriate uh, to the to the accuser, Cater Gordon. Yes. So it's interesting that you bring up Marty Noxon, who, as you say, is a friend of mine. Uh, When I say that, I mean I admire her greatly and she has no idea who I am. Uh, Because, and not again to read another list of things, but uh, the other day I saw a headline uh, saying, with television's golden age tarnished by Louis C.K. and Kevin Spacey and others, uh, the medium's brightest era has gone dark. Uh, To which Melissa Hunter at MelissaFTW tweeted, Transparent, broad city, fleabag, insecure girls, unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, 
Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Jessica Jones, Difficult People, One Mississippi, Unreal, Orange is the New Black, Take My Wife, Women Have Been Here, We'll Keep the Lights On, Thanks. You know, it is a bit, of course the industry is being changed irreparably. And of course, all of these kind of sacred cows that we have talked about are, even if not all of these allegations result in somebody saying, as Louis C.K. did, these accusations are true. Uh, Of course, there are going to be so many of the giants who will fall or be tarnished. But again, there are all these other people who have been here not being the A-list, who have been working, who have been women, or people of color, or people of the LGBT community, or all of the intersections therein, um, who are more than willing and ready to take up the mantles. So, like, I think we're going to be okay. All right. Well, that's a nice segue to the Hollywood Reporter Actress Roundtable. Uh, who do we have? Mary J. Blige, Jessica Chastain, Allison Janney, Saoirse Ronan, Emma Stone, and Jennifer Lawrence. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, we usually start this podcast with the biggest names of the podcast, right? Um, had this been another week, this would have been our top story, so to speak. But it's interesting because you were talking about who we listen to and who we think is most interesting and who gets the vast, vast majority of this roundtable conversation. Like, it's not a six-way split. No. I mean, look, who – what's the question here? Who, got, who gets the most airtime? Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence. And Emma Stone. That's right. Um, what stood out to me is that it was Jessica Chastain who was like, hey, Mary, what do you think? <laughs> um, okay, <laughs> I guess so. Like, sure. I wasn't there, so maybe that's generous to – yeah, she does. There are a couple of times where she says, I'm interested in your point of view. That's right. Yes. Like, it's it's very, it's so obvious that, like, I haven't watched the video. Did you watch the video? Because I just read it. No, as I have said to you before, <laughs> that could be on my tombstone. No, I didn't, re- I didn't watch it. I read it. But in words, it looks really like the stage direction is Jessica, Ch- Jessica Chastain whips her head over to Mary J. Blige and you know, pointedly brings Mary J into the conversation. Well, maybe that's why I see, I feel skeptical because, you know, we don't know if there was somebody offstage nodding at Jessica Chastain to do so uh, or what. But yeah, the, the Jennifer Lawrence patented Jennifer Lawrence-dom, uh, her being sort of wacky and hilarious and devil may care and saying whatever, uh, and Emma Stone's sort of wide-eyedness dominate the discussion here. Uh, and Mary J. Blige's, like, fascinating insights are sort of isolated little islands in the conversation. It was a bit of an odd one, to be honest. I agree. I agree that it was an odd one. And I also felt like there was, um, you're right, the dynamic between Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone, like, Partly, it was Jennifer Lawrence being Emma Stone's cheerleader. You're too hard on yourself. Stop doing that. I am. Um, But it was Jessica Chastain, too, who brought the most concrete examples of the work, you know, where she talked about what projects her agents were bringing to her and that comment she made about the cut they got. 
Sure. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Um, I really like that she was the one who was willing to break down the business side of it. So here's Jessica Chastain. A lot of the problem in terms of wage equality, but also in terms of female writers and directors coming onto projects starts at the agency level. I now have a production company and I'm asking my agents, can you guys send me a list of writers? And it's all men. I'm realizing that they're going to submit the writers that have the higher quote because they get a percentage of the quote. So that's leading us to why there's not so many female filmmakers, right? But with actors, I don't understand. If you're a very successful agency and they know what everyone is making on the film, how an agent is okay with you making a third of your co-star salary? After Zero Dark Thirty, I was sent a lot of scripts where it was a female protagonist and they wouldn't do my deal until they knew who the male actor was because they needed to do his deal first and then see what was left over. And then she goes on to say that she's changed her approach. From now on, her deal comes first. She doesn't wait for anybody else to do their fucking deal. And that's how it is. But there's a lot to unpack here because that's so interesting about the male writers and their quotes being higher. The agents obviously getting a higher percentage from a higher quote where the talent they're representing is demanding more. And it filters down from there. She's in a position now as you know, she's clearly alluding to with a production company to be not only insisting that her quote comes first or that her deal is done first, but she's asking for, are we getting projects that are written by women? Yeah, absolutely. Where are they? Where are we seeing them? How do we hear That's them? right. Yeah. But as you are pointing out, I think she's one of six vaunted actresses at this table. And even of those six, I'm going to say only four of them would even have the power to make those demands. And she of the six, Chastain, I mean, is not the probably the most powerful of the six. No. So you have Jennifer Lawrence, box office, like, right. star, gold, Oscar winner. She's the, uh, she's the top power at that table. Uh, Emma Stone, sort of number two. Like, she's Emma Stone. She's won an Oscar. What she does now will be interesting, but she doesn't open her own movies necessarily, not since Easy A. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then I would say Jessica Chastain, I guess, and then Alice and Jenny. Uh, Saoirse Ronan, who is basically absent from this discussion. Missing. And Mary J. Blige do not have that power to say, do my deal first or we're not making this movie. That's right. They do not have the power. They can say like, oh, can you send me the projects from your female writers, uh, but they don't necessarily have the clout to get those movies made or get them made properly by a studio for, you know, full financing as opposed to a smaller movie. Uh, not unlike maybe a Ladybird, which is what Saoirse Ronan is in and why she's at this table not talking. So, I mean, the natural progression from there is when we're talking about power and who has the clout, then... Will we be hearing from Jennifer Lawrence that she also is going to be, hey, where are the scripts from the women writers? No. Do you think that's Jennifer Lawrence? This is what I want to talk about. So let's talk about it. Do you think that's who she is? I am afraid to say it, but not. she hasn't shown me that that's who she is. I mean, really, for all intents and purposes, Jennifer Lawrence was there to give platitudes. Well, and facilitate the conversation. Look, I sort of said, oh, Jennifer Lawrence was doing her Jennifer Lawrence thing. 
But Jennifer Lawrence is never not that. She is reliably that, and she's great at it. She's funny. She's ballsy. She's entertaining. It's just that we don't have any – she's been doing it for several years, hence, uh, or several years uh, in recent memory, and we don't have anybody new to kind of supplant her. She's still doing that Jennifer Lawrence thing that she was doing that was already sort of her thing, Circa Silver Linings playbook, you know? And it kind of has been quite, you know, she's filled her role and she's really worked in the sort of, what do we call that? Like ingenue and, uh, not guru, what's the word for for her relationship with like David O. Russell? And Muse. So forth? Yeah, like, but he's her, you know, creator in a way. Um, she works well within that model. You know, that has worked for her. Maybe when it stops working, it's like a Julia Roberts, Gary Marshall sort of magic relationship. Maybe at that point she'll start looking for that. But she has not, I'm sure she has a production company. That's just smart business. But she hasn't seemed to be that interested in, in doing that. I wouldn't say that Emma Stone has been that interested in doing that. I would say that probably Jessica Chastain, who, as you say, is quite open about talking about her quote and writer's quotes and so forth, there are some people who probably don't want to work with Jessica Chastain because she talks about things like that. I think the reason why I said I was afraid to say it is because, is that okay? Can Jennifer Lawrence and Emma Stone go on and keep doing the work that they're doing without the responsibility of uplifting other people? I mean, it takes all kinds, right? Like it, that's what makes the world go round is there are people who play the game and who benefit only themselves and there are people who decide to not. Put it this way, there were many, many daytime talk show hosts before one of them decided to be Oprah and change the game, right? You know, it takes all kinds of people uh, to make this work. Is it okay I guess it's okay. It's fine. If it works for them, it's fine. Um, they are rich women who have careers that they, uh, you know, that do very well for them. Is it the way of the future? Not necessarily. Uh, is it forward thinking? Not necessarily. This is where the key comes in. Allison Janney, who again does not talk a lot in this interview, is in her late 50s, 57. Um, She's seen a lot of the world go by and the industry go by. Uh, I think Alice and Janie, I would want to be talking to her about career longevity and how to have an eye towards what it's going to be like when I'm not the ingenue anymore, when I'm not the hottest box office thing because that's coming. I think when you're not that, when you're not the biggest, brightest star, you get better at looking at how am I going to diversify, pardon the jargon, how am I going to be a producer or learn about directing or get an eye into a different part of this world that's going to let me hang around? Uh, and what, you, what you're talking about uh, in the case of Jennifer Lawrence, who is, you know, one person, is somebody who hasn't had to do that. But I guess the thing is she's the minority, somebody who hasn't had to worry about how she's going to protect her, you know, her kind of hold in the business, she's the exception. Well, you know what I find interesting about that whole Jennifer Lawrence thing or this whole Jennifer Lawrence thing is that um, many people would point to her Lenny letter essay mm -hmm. about 
uh, pay equality. Mm-hmm. And the example that she gave about, what was it, American Hustle? Yep. Following the Sony League mm-hmm. and writing about it as like a moment where she f- stepped up. Sure. And then it seems like there was no follow-up. But, you know, I guess I'm kind of okay with that. And here's why. It's not on Jennifer Lawrence to save the industry. Uh, She is the biggest female actress, quote-wise and profile-wise, so I understand why we look at her. But, you know, that Lenny letter was her contribution. She may have another contribution at some point. Uh, Jessica Chastain explaining, pulling kind of the curtain back on the differences between quotes is is her move right now. Jessica Chastain has said some weird things on uh, on Twitter in the in the the past little while that haven't been ideal. So you know, everybody kind of takes a couple steps forward and a couple back. I'm okay with the fact that Jennifer Lawrence is not changing the game, uh, sort of at all times. What I did like about the Lenny letter is that it seemed in keeping with her brand, as we always say. It was kind of outspoken. It was kind of, well, why the fuck shouldn't I talk about this? And frankly, it was her talking about her own self. That's how Jennifer Lawrence talks about this stuff, right? When it comes up about her uh, or maybe her best friend, Emma Stone. That was a weird thing that came out of nowhere. So I'm kind of okay with her talking about it when it next occurs to her. Like, you know how there's a whole generation of dudes who love Jennifer Aniston still? Like, they just were formed sexually by Rachel on Friends. Yes. And they'll never hear a word against her. Like, if Jennifer Aniston talked about sexism in the industry, for example, there would be a whole generation of dudes who are like, well, that is bullshit. (laughs) Similarly, I feel like, uh, you know, if and when Jennifer Lawrence says, hey, this weird thing happens, there are she's going to reach people. She's Jennifer Lawrence. She has that reach. But I think it's okay for her to wait until it's something authentic for her to say. Put it that way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm wondering how long before um, Jennifer Lawrence in this example, given that we have seen her She's not like Jessica Chastain and saying, why aren't you bringing me scripts written by women? And she's not um, advocating for more female directors and working with more female directors. That we know of, but yeah. How long before then we get a think piece from somebody being like, is Jennifer Lawrence the Taylor Swift of movies? I mean, I think you just, uh, you know, dropped that elephant's tear to to – sprouted or something. Look, but- the point of our discussions is, or the point of this discussion is we're always trying to work out our thoughts. I don't have an answer to that. But I do know that in reading this, I thought to myself, well, Jessica Chastain is giving me something here, giving me some insight into how her work life is changing, or at least how she's applying 
some of her standards and her values to her work life. And I don't know that I'm seeing that from Jennifer Lawrence. Now, listen, they're at different stages of their careers and lives. Jennifer Lawrence is not close to 30. What, 28? Something like that? Maybe. (laughs) Um, So that has a lot to do with it too. Um, Was Jennifer Lawrence born in 1989? Jennifer Lawrence was born in 1990. She is 27. Okay. So now, and I should say that when I Googled that to find that out, uh, the news headline that came up with it was, Jennifer Lawrence, I was punished for standing up to a director, which she talks about in this interview, uh, and, you know, which is a good point that she makes, um, that she she's talked about a director who was abusive to her uh, in the moment, on the spot, and she mouthed off to him and was told by producers, you can't talk that way, and her point was accurate. Why can't I? Um, But it underlines my point. Jennifer Lawrence talks about it when it happens to her. To her. Uh, And it doesn't happen to her a whole lot right now because she's Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, Whereas, ask Saoirse Ronan what it's like for her. Ask Tessa Thompson. You know, Ellen Page came up with a a really upsetting story uh, in the last couple of weeks about uh, the the abuse that she took uh, from Brett Ratner um, on... uh, the set of an X-Men film that I will look up and clarify. Uh, but they, she has the stories, you know, uh, a Saoirse Ronan has the stories, a, a whomever, fill in the blank. Jennifer Lawrence at this point may be the only woman who doesn't yet. And so I think it's okay if we wait for that to come. Uh, and I think Emma Stone is getting off relatively easy in our conversation because I think we could point to almost everything we've just said, and apply it to Emma Stone as well, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it'll be interesting. The next decade, as we say, uh, as as Hollywood reinvents itself, will be interesting. Well, on that note with the Emma Stone, it was almost as though she was there to make a point of not saying anything much. And it reminded me of, um, well, it reminded me of, let's say, Kate McKinnon's approach to her Vanity Fair piece. How can I be profiled in Vanity Fair but not say anything? And there is an art, right, to not saying anything but getting it done? There is an art because when it's done well, you don't notice that it's happening. Yeah. And just to go back, you know, if you haven't already, read the Kate McKinnon Vanity Fair cover feature from two months ago. It was... First of all, I think the writer was criticized for the way that she wrote it. But at the same time, to be fair to the writer, Kate McKinnon literally didn't give her anything. I think Kate McKinnon only had like two quotes. So, you know, I uh, I actually got a letter about that from Mallory, hoping that we would talk about it on Show Your Work, uh, asking about the profile in Vanity Fair. Um, she gives her... Almost nothing, and that is being generous. <laughs> yes, uh, it was. It was a bit of a shocking interview because, yeah, there's there's somebody. I think it was Vulture actually pulled out the number of direct quotes yeah. from Kate McKinnon, and I believe there are six, and they're pretty insubstantial. Uh, she is notoriously dodgy about her personal life, uh, and you know whatever that might entail, and that's obviously totally fine, uh, but. She's in a weird position because, of course, Kate McKinnon 
was synonymous with Hillary Clinton, which was going to be the busiest acting year of her life. Um, And then, of course, she wasn't Hillary Clinton and everything happened and now she's Jeff Sessions. And so her life is different. And I actually was thinking as I was, just as I'm talking about this, you talked about organizing our thoughts. I wonder if Kate McKinnon is a bit afraid right now. And I don't mean that in a in a euphemistic kind of way. Like the stars of Saturday Night Live are notoriously, you know, they're New Yorkers. They take the subway to work. We all know their schedule, right? If you know anything about SNL, uh, you know, they just go in on Monday for the meeting and then they go in on Tuesday and then they write all night and blah, blah, blah. I wonder if Kate McKinnon is afraid like for her life, uh, if it's a scary time to be somebody who is that public and that publicly a Hillary Clinton fan. Well, and on top of that, on top of who she was supposed to play and who she didn't get to play and who she's playing now, she's on the cover of Vanity Fair because she's on the cusp of movie stardom. So there are two or three movie deals that she will be headlining herself. Um, They're moving her into that stage of her career. I mean, you don't, you know, when you are still part of the ensemble of Saturday Night Live and you are still not a standout, you're not covering Vanity Fair. So the moment that you're covering Vanity Fair is because something is happening. The momentum is building. She's the next one. Yes. She is the next one. And I think that she and her team, her team is certainly working towards that goal. They've signed, like I said, several of those movie deals and they're about to come and hit us. And so part of that fear is, oh shit, can I still take the subway? Yeah, absolutely. And be pretty anonymous. Low key, you know, by all accounts, she is easygoing and easy to get along with mm-hmm. and kind of chill. And yeah, do I have to become the Hollywood person that being on the cover of Vanity Fair yeah. might indicate? And they want to talk to me and this is what I want to, and this is what they want to know about me, but I don't want to tell them that about me. So we get this really bizarre interview that is not really an interview. It is a profile, but the profile doesn't tell us much of anything. Contrast that to you can do an interview where you don't say much, and if you pull out the quotes, there may only be six of them, but it ends up being still very good work and a great profile of what your work is going to be, and that is Drake. So I have to say, we're talking about uh, the Drake interview in The Hollywood Reporter, uh, published on November 8th. And it's a great read. If you haven't read it, it is well-written. The writer is Tatiana Siegel. And you actually pointed out to me that there were not that many quotes, uh, at which point I, you know, compared it to the Kate McKinnon because uh, it doesn't feel that way. It feels as though you are getting an intimacy and, uh, you know, spending some time with Drake. Well, my exact words to you were, he says nothing. And you write back in all caps, nothing. And yet, there is a sense of getting a lot out of this. Well, first of all, he does the Drake thing where, you know, instead of meeting at a coffee shop, um, <laughs> the Tatiana gets to go to Drake's, like, apartment overlooking Toronto. Right. And a lot of writing is spent on, like, it, is, was it Tupac? It was like that piece of art and it was Tupac. Oh, the the art is uh, less Drake, more Tupac. That's right. the piece of art, which he bought because he's Drake. That's right. And so while Drake doesn't say much, when you really go and read this article, the amount of words that he offers are substantially less than his manager's. 
But let's be real here. If this were a profile of, I don't know, some like hunk of actor that I don't care about, like a Tom Hardy or whatever, and it was about like his 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 Santa Monica pied-a-terre, we'd know about the like beaten floorboards where the sand is kind of gritty under your feet and how there's crystals that an ex-girlfriend left him and, uh, you know, he doesn't think much of them, but uh, but I just can't let them go or whatever. Like there's, it's, we spend a lot of time on this kind of thing in all of these kind of profile pieces. Yeah. And I should point out, uh, it took a lot of restraint for you not to squeal over the paragraphs, paragraphs that were uh, devoted solely to Harry Potter. Oh, we're going to get to Drake and Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, well, I guess we're there because you're grinning and blushing. So let's go. I mean, like, again, it's, you know, the apartment, the Tupac piece of art. And yes, as you mentioned, these are standard celebrity profile ticks, for lack of a better word. Ticks the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You check the boxes, you go into the house, you remark on the rug. What I, I think is different about this um, this Drake profile and how even though it's your garden variety celebrity, I'm going into their home, every detail is connected to a Drake ambition or a Drake piece of personality. That artwork is a little cheeky. It references the fact that, you know, people have called him soft his entire career. So it does actually have a point, whereas a lot of the coffee table details that we get from a lot of these profiles are more about like literally what furniture is recommended for your next buy. Nobody is going to buy a piece of art that says, uh, what, more Tupac, less Drake? Like that is very specific to Drake. That is not recommending what furniture and what artwork to put up on your, your wall. It is, this is the artwork that is on Drake's wall because it specifically pertains to who Drake is. But I mean, you know, if you're cynical, you could say, sure, yeah, but he knew she was coming over. He curated that self-referential, uh, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, self-deprecating thing to make it so, just as, you know, the, the celebrity profile would be, uh, Tom Hardy has unwashed hair because he was out uh, tending to his sick baby foal uh, in the <laughs> barns. He... He's learning a lot about her, but it was a rough night, he says. Like, it's all the sort of, it it could be curated, I guess is my point. But again, you are giggling like a schoolgirl. No, I think you it's love 100% it. curated because you have the Tupac Drake and then later. Hold for Barney. Oh, I definitely think it was curated. I mean, like, I think the the Tupac Drake art piece was meant to go with the Harry Potter. Like, oh, I'm not as hard as Tupac, and look at me being all Harry Potter nerd. Wait a second, though. Nobody, I mean, nobody needs more. I guess here's my question. Who is that supposed to appeal to? Uh, and don't get me wrong, it worked. But I didn't need to be swayed into that camp. But I don't think that it was for you, the Hollywood. So, who, so then who's it for? Well, I mean, it is a strategic move to have your declared ambition to get into entertainment and media and television and developing your own production company to be put in the Hollywood Reporter. Like, it is 
probably the biggest trade right now. So I don't know that it was intended for you. Okay, but we've kind of buried the lead. The whole thrust of this article is that Drake's interests in movies and television uh, are now, it's now time for him to kind of grow them, to work with them. Uh, that's sort of the point of this article. That's why it was that's timed right. for now. That's what we're being primed for. Yes. Inside an ambitious push into film and TV. So, like, this is, yeah, I am coming for this business. But again, who is it for? Sure. Let's say this is the biggest trade paper. So, you know, uh, the article is full of Elvis. So help me God. Okay, so who is it for? If, as you say, you know, this is one of the biggest trades, by all means, but the article is thick with quotes about how um, there are companies basically throwing money and airtime at Drake's feet. He has a Netflix series that he's produced that's on the way. There's a quote here saying uh, basically that Apple will do whatever the hell Drake and Future want to do. Uh, which is about as big as it gets. So who do you think he needs to endear himself to with his sort of hard, soft combo? Well, I think that Drake needs to go out to, number one, like, you're right, he's got Apple money, he's got Netflix money, but I think it is also for, like, investor reassurance. When you are an Apple and when you are a Netflix and you invest all that money and you say, here, Drake, here's all our money, you also have to talk to your investors and be like, this is why we are investing in an entity like this. And I'm sorry to have to say this, but he is of a culture, right? He is a hip hop artist. And we know they wouldn't have to make these assurances when they're making an investment in, say, someone like Taylor Swift if Taylor is making a big push into movies and TV. This is an attempt to say, hey, this guy is a serious businessman. He has done his research. He is not just about being in the studio and releasing albums. He is well-read. In this article, they also go to great lengths to talk about how he's the most informed person in the room. It's not unlike that Alex Rodriguez profile. Um, a few weeks ago, too, about how Warren Buffett was like, this is a guy who does his homework. He's always more prepared than anybody else. This is Drake saying, when I dress up in a suit, I back up the suit with the knowledge. So here is, this is what that is. Right. Uh, basically to say this is not a uh, kind of a vanity project or somebody who wants to play director for a couple of weeks, but somebody who is worth your time. That's right. And I said, I hate to say it because, you know, people associate Drake with hip hop culture, but it must be said in that sense that like, remember who we're talking about, the people who populate boardrooms and the people who represent that old school power structure where the money comes from and where their stereotypes come from. So, I mean, let's just say you're talking about white men. That's right. White, rich male investors who typically see the Drakes of the world as, who am I going to pay a million dollars to to play at my grandchild or child's sweet 16, right? Like, this is the association. Am I going to now 
have a business deal with this person. You know, you're exactly right, of course. Um, But it kind of, it makes me, I'm surprised that it makes me happy in a weird way. Uh, And that's because I was thinking about other people who might have uh, broken barriers in similar ways, uh, who, you know, I don't know what the first uh, sort of scripted project that on which Jay-Z was a producer, but, uh, you know, we could, we could find out what that was. But often what you hear is, oh, so-and-so is a producer on this, uh, meaning one of many, meaning they kicked in some money, which is to say, oh, thanks, cool. They're not necessarily the ones driving everything. A lot of people in a Drake position learn as they go. They learn on the way up. They dip their toes in something, right? They they do a limited something or a collaboration. What you're saying about the article as a veiled vetting process, basically, is also pointing to the fact that he's going to be given a lot of control. Drake is going to be in the position of having absolute creative and uh, ostensibly financial control of everything he's doing. And that is actually kind of exciting. No, I really like it too, especially because the creative control that Drake is using is part of a certain approach that I actually learned from, well, my students. So I haven't really talked much about this, but this semester, um, starting back in September, I uh, began a visiting professor um, position at Western University, my alma mater. So I am teaching a fourth year course on gossip and culture um, at uh, at the Faculty of Arts at Western. Which is in London, Ontario. That's right. Um, and so it's a fourth year cohort. There's about 20 students in the class. And I just want to pause here and point out that you have manifested uh, – being a professor of gossip at a liberal arts university, as you used Correct. to discuss, like Joke about. this is the thing that became the thing. That's right. Okay, stop being weird and humble. I'm going to take as much time as I want to take. I know, but we have a point here, like that they're teaching me actually, and they gave me just to, to just to finish off this point. They gave me a concept called reform versus revolution. So. There are different um, mechanisms to enact change. One of them is revolution, where you literally tear everything down and you build it back up. Reform is going inside a system that is broken and, you know, keeping the pillars of that system alive and reforming the mechanisms inside of it. What Drake is doing is reform. So he's working, he's going into the system, he's working with the Apples, he's working with the Netflixes, he's like, hey, look at me, I am a rapper, I'm from Toronto, I know what you think of me, but I want to get into movies and television, I want to run my own ship, and we're going to work together. And so what Drake is doing is reformation, which is really exciting because that is, you know, it is a very political theory or a... It is a a political theory of change that some argue is the best way to do it without 
like a lot of collateral damage. Sure. You got to play the game in other words, right? Yes. Ride the horse in the direction it's going is another one that I learned a long time ago that we've talked about. Play the game, go along to get along, and then play your game once you get there. Yeah. Or you play the revolution game. You tear everything down. You do it your own way. You come in from the outside. You play a bit of Samantha B. I mean, it's early, but this may wind up uh, becoming a bit of a theme for us here. I like this. And this is what we're seeing here from Drake. You know, the title of this Hollywood Reporter article is Drake's Hotline to Hollywood Inside an Ambitious Push into Film and TV. That's not burying the lead. We buried the lead, but they didn't or he didn't. It's like, hey, I'm here. I'm coming into your world and you're going to accept me. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it's my Canadian bias or something else that uh, I raise an eyebrow that he was ever not going to be admitted because, as you say, he's always been seen as soft. He's always been the SNL guy. He's already gone to places that, uh, you know, other hip hop artists, other rappers didn't, uh, were not, did not have entree to. Well, if we're talking to go back to curation and how everything is linked together, are we willing to then say that Drake, from the beginning of his career, set that up for his brand? I am going to be the emo, uh, super (laughs) into my feelings, softer side of hip hop because I have a long range goal. Yeah, Drake would say so. And given my long-range goal, I'm going to be able to get into that fucking boardroom easier or at least consistently, it'll be consistent with my brand to get into that boardroom with, with, um, with this approach. Because as interesting as all of this is, it also is on brand. Oh, yeah. And he would absolutely say so. Again, I'm not talking like I know the dude. We're not chatting about this. But I would say, you know, if I had to guess, absolutely. It's, again, lean into what you have. He is, of course, unusual in that he, you know, he was, he he had experiences in the business before he dropped his first mixtape. That was all going to come out. So you lean into that. You lean into, yeah, I was a teen actor on a kid show rather than trying to hide it. Um, you, case in point, you think about, you know, the the Britney Spearses and the Justin Timberlakes who, when they emerged in the late 90s, uh, took a long, t- uh, took great pains to say, but I'm not like I was on the Mickey Mouse Club. And it's like, well, okay, so you, you try too hard. Uh, I think, you know, if you say from the beginning, yeah, this is everything I have, I'm laying everything I have on the table – you do set the stage for, and this is the way I'm going to continue, being open, being transparent, being naked about my ambition even. There's no false humility in this article. There's no, maybe if it happens, it happens. That would be great. It's, I am coming for these next steps. Well, I'm I'm going to be watching really closely too in a few years what Drake does to move into this ambition because then it'll give us a very interesting comparison between him and the first billionaire of hip-hop, who's Dr. Dre. So Drake, as you mentioned, you brought up first, Apple is basically saying you can have anything. Now, Apple, of course, 
um, is the company that made Dre a billionaire because Apple bought Beats, which was, of course, the headphone company that Dre founded with Jimmy Iovine. So the interesting comparison here is Drake, with all of these ambitions, is going to be a future hip-hop billionaire. His path to it is going to be a little bit different from Dre's. Dre developed a partnership with Jimmy, and together they developed this product. And if you if you watch and read all of, like, um, there's a great documentary about, which I've been telling you about Jimmy and Dre and their, like, career trajectory – you do get the sense that Jimmy was Dre's entree into major billionaire corporate America. Drake, in comparison, if he gets there, if he gets to that billionaire status… When he gets there, yeah. When he gets there, there's no Jimmy Iovine there for him. No, but he's going to be the Jimmy Iovine. That's right. And I think that… I think that that is going to be like when this happens, two years, five years, 10 years, whatever, there is going to be an interesting analysis in the progression of, you know, Dre going to open that door and becoming the first and then how future iterations of hip hop billionaires create that path. I mean, you know, since we were talking about it earlier with regard to Jennifer Lawrence, Drake is 31 years old. There is so much time. Uh, and so, you know, the phases of a career and the decades, it's very exciting to look at them and go, okay, you know, uh, they can be laid out and seeing the ways in which they are met or deviate will, yeah, be really interesting. It is. From both an artistic uh, work standpoint and a cultural and social standpoint, you know, as I said, and this may be a very controversial point that Dre sort of got into the billionaires club in partnership with Jimmy Iovine, who's white, and Drake… And for the cheap seats, Jimmy Iovine, before he was Dre's partner, was… A, a super producer. I mean, so many of the big albums that have been around in the last 40 years, Jimmy Iovine produced them. You um, 2 Bruce Springsteen. I mean, the list goes on and on. So Jimmy Iovine was not a nobody. Um, and together they became this supernova. Um, from, from the perspective of cultural progression and social progression, if the first black billionaire did it in partnership with an equally powerful or perhaps more powerful white man, and Drake ends up doing it and getting into bed with basically one of or two of the most significant corporations in America on his own… There is something there too. There is there I don't know that there is a downside. No, I think it's more, you know, again, he's 31 years old, so when that happens, then what? You know, uh, I don't want to speculate at this point, uh but again, in the year of 2017, we have seen insane things happen and we are seriously considering things uh for people we used to refer to as actors and musicians that I would have never thought possible. So truly, the sky is the limit. Look, one day, Drake could be... Drake could be Louis B. Mayer. Yeah, sure. He could oh. be the most powerful studio head in Hollywood. Absolutely. I, there's no doubt in my mind, uh, if that's what he wants, that absolutely he could be. There's so much time. 
So speaking of time and opportunities, uh, you know, uh, I did, the, there's a new household name in my, in my life right now. And uh, this person was not a household name as of this morning. And now everybody I know is talking and writing about this person. Uh, we've been talking about whether or not we're going to keep the segment uh, Do We Need to Care About, uh, whether we're going to brand a new one. Uh, I'm thinking about a segment called I'm All Out of Love For. If you have other suggestions, we would love to hear them. Uh, I love to brand them. Elaine thinks the names are cheesy. It really makes me happy when we when we cringe about them. But today's new household name in my life, in your life, uh, and I assume in everybody's who's listening, is uh, Radhika Jones. Did you know who Radhika Jones was before today? Uh, I did know who she was before today, but like only last week when the rumors started circulating that Radhika Jones was going to be the new editor of Vanity Fair. But before like last week, no. So Radhika Jones is, in fact, going to be the new editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. She was a book editor at the New York Times or an editor in the books department. Uh, and she starts the job in December, I think. Uh, but today, there was a news item about her that broke. Actually, two. But uh, but the big one was the, the Women's Wear Daily article that broke today. What did you think when you read this? What I want to say is I think the reaction to the story is much more interesting than the story, but here's the story. So according to Women's Wear Daily, they're quoting a source, uh, some anonymous fashion editor that was present at the first meeting when Radhika Jones walked in and supposedly Anna Wintour like gave her one of her famous Anna Wintour glares and wasn't impressed because Radhika's outfit was like... She was wearing fox print tights. So there was a comment about the dress that was, uh, and I think it's like a quote of somebody else quoting somebody. So this is third hand, but it was like a navy shift covered in zippers. And I think they called it very iffy, for example. Yeah. And then, right, the tights had a fox print on them. That's right. So, you know, I hear you about the reaction to the story, but before we get there, uh, Anna Wintour is in the meeting because, of course, she's on the Condé Nast, like, editorial board and so forth. I find this incredibly ballsy. Unless you live under a rock and a books editor at the New York Times does not, this woman is not an idiot. Uh, so she knows that she's going to be scrutinized and she knows everybody's heard about Condé Nasties and the sort of runway that is the elevators and all the rest of it. So there's no way. It's one thing to, you know, I don't know, walk in with last season's black dress on. But if you walk in with fox print tights on, this is not an accident. This is deliberate. It is so baller to me. I am so into this move of being like, yeah, I'm an awkward book girl. Suck it. I have the big job. That's right. And I actually don't buy that Anna Wintour wasn't like glaring at her. I buy that this fashion editor, whoever this anonymous staffer is, um, didn't like it. You oh, know. absolutely. And didn't have anything else to snark about. That's right. I don't buy that this person's interpretation of Anna Wintour's reaction was the way Anna Wintour reacted. Because as you just said, Anna Wintour hired her. 
yeah, was <laughs> like, was certainly material in hiring her. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. So that said, 100% a baller move. Like, let me just come in with my uh, tights that I probably bought online. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> like the box yeah, print. That like, I have no idea if she, like her niece gave her for Christmas or something. It just implies I am not a slave to your game. Yes. And, you know, we talk all the time on this podcast about why we talk about clothes and is it feminist or is it not to talk about clothes and what women wear or so forth. And I think this is such a great, unusual example of power dressing and a power move. I'm so into it. I can't even talk about it. Well, I'm so into it and I'm definitely into the reaction because, you know, of course, Twitter had a lot to say about it and it's now turned into like a feminist movement, Fox tights, and now Fox tights are sold out. They're sold out everywhere. I tried to buy some. (laughs) And, you know, pretty soon Fox pajamas will be sold out because, you know, when you can't find the tights, then you're going to go find pajamas. And if you can't find pajamas, you're going to find a t-shirt. And so even before starting the job, number one, she's made herself a known name Following Graydon Carter, by the way, not yeah. like small shoes to fill, right? We just made big like eyebrow raised faces at one another. Graydon Carter is, yeah, our entire adult lives has been Graydon Carter. Yes. So you go from a nobody or at least not a bold face name in circles outside of the New York publishing elite or whatnot, and people know you, then you're automatically declared as a fashion icon. <laughs> I mean... You know, yeah, it's the new way, yeah. Well, if you are actually selling out items of clothing without not even being photographed in the item of clothing. Yeah, like this is a whisper campaign about Fox tights. That's right. Like, you know, when Princess Kate or whoever steps out, Meghan Markle steps out wearing a dress or jeans, you have a photograph. You know what they look like. We don't actually know what, ra- like, what she looked like, Radical looked like wearing these tights. All we got was words, and they sold out based on the words. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, and it's – I hate to keep banging this drum, but this is – it's a real strike for the – for the other girls, you know, for the awkwards, if you will, for not sweating that much. And I say this as somebody who – has obsessed over every outfit I've ever worn to any meeting ever and then forgotten what it was immediately afterward. I cannot remember anything I wore anywhere. It's such a it's such a huge deal to go, I'm not going to play by your rules. It's going to be different now. I'm here now. Now things are going to change. And for it to fucking work. I any way you look at it, it's it's breathtaking because I have to say, when I first read the article, I thought for a minute that it was possible that it was also like a deliberate leak. Uh, sure. And sure. if it was, also baller. Yeah, right? I'm still like, for it. Yeah. <laughs> let me leak this story that suggests that Anna might not like me because I've sh- – let me leak this story that suggests that Anna might not like me because I have shitty fashion sense. Like – let me present it that way. And then it turns out great too. So any way you ba- unpack this, whether or not it was completely authentic, whether or not pe- – because people out there love conspiracy theories. So even if it was a conspiracy theory, it's great too. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is – and I – you know, it's sacrilege to say this, but 
Anna Wintour almost doesn't matter in this scenario. We've been talking about ages all through this podcast. Graydon Carter is 114. Um, and Radhika Jones is 44. Anna Wintour, I believe, is in her 70s. This is the new way. This is like all those old rules don't apply. And so it almost doesn't matter to me whether Anna Wintour sneered or not. I was more interested in the sneerings of the nameless, faceless Women's Wear Daily staffers because they are the ones who are like, oh, shit, I spent mm -hmm. all this time learning the Wintour way and now everything's about to change. Here's the harbinger of change. So to tie things back, um, on my first day of teaching, um, it was announced that Graydon Carter would be stepping down as the editor of Vanity Fair, and that became my first lecture, if you will. The uh, significance of Vanity Fair in the celebrity ecosystem, how he both managed fame and controlled it uh, with, you know, the Vanity Fair Oscar party, who gets invited, um, and his theory of the seven rooms of fame and who gets admitted into the different levels of fame. And so my students and I discussed what fame has been like under the tenure of Graydon Carter during his reign as editor of Vanity Fair. And the question was, will Vanity Fair still be relevant? What will it look like? Let's look back at its past um, and project its future. And their assignment was like a Vanity Fair style piece. Now, you know, just three months later, we have the editor of Vanity Fair, even before she issues her first issue, already making a statement. It's very exciting. So here's my question to you. Is this move by Radhika Jones, the outfit and, you know, any attendant leaks, if in fact they were leaks, is this reformation or revolution? Oh, that's a great question. I think it's reformation. But it could also be a revolution. This could be the first step in tearing it all down. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to see. We don't know, right? Like, this is what's so exciting is that we have a leader who is we cannot predict what her moves are going to be. She has basically declared, even before her first issue, once again, that you cannot say exactly what we're going to expect. I like that. Like, clearly, this is not going to be someone in the mold of Graydon. Although he kind of broke his own mold, too. So I yeah. think that's kind of the point. Tell us what you think. Reformation, revolution. Are you into it? Did you immediately Google her as I did and discover that her style is kind of awesome? Uh, not that it matters. Uh, and, you know, what else do you want to hear about for season two of Show Your Work? We are excited to be back. We want to hear from you. Leave us your reviews on iTunes and check us out on Google Play and keep sending us your emails. We want to read them during the show. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.